Welcome to Our Missouri, a podcast about the people, places, culture, and history of the 114 counties and independent city of St. Louis that comprise the great state of Missouri. Each episode focuses on a topic related to the state, ranging from publications about Missouri's history to current projects undertaken by organizations to preserve and promote local institutions. The Our Missouri podcast is recorded at the Center for Missouri Studies in Columbia and is generously provided to you by the State Historical Society of Missouri. And now, here's your host, Sean Rost. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, or whatever hour you're tuning in to listen to the Our Missouri podcast. My name is Sean Rost, and I'll be your guide as we explore the memories, moments, and misfortunes from Our Missouri. In honor of the state's 200th birthday, Our Missouri will feature a series throughout 2021 entitled Bicentennial Book Club, which discusses award-winning publications that detail the state's diverse history, as well as the stories behind the stories featured within their pages. Our guest today is Louis Gertheis. He holds a PhD in history from the University of Wisconsin and presently serves as a professor emeritus of history at the University of Missouri, St. Louis. He is the author of several books, including Civil War St. Louis and The Civil War in Missouri, A Military History. Welcome to our Missouri, Louis. Thank you. Now, Thinking back and looking over these projects, where did your interest in really Civil War and Civil War history originate? Well, as I was thinking about that, I, I, I uh, was born in Kansas City, Missouri, but uh, uh, moved with my family to uh, the Washington, D.C. area when I guess I was about two years old. So I grew up in Arlington, Virginia in the 1950s and uh, was fond of uh, visiting Lee's Mansion, and we weren't too far away from uh, Bull Run and Ball's Bluff and places like that. Uh, and so I kind of was immersed in uh, uh, Civil War uh, history because of the locale. Uh, and then, in, and that was in the 1950s when I uh, went to graduate school uh, in the uh, second half of the 60s, um, I was very much impressed with uh, uh, at the time, a new book by Willie Lee Rose, who was a Van Woodward student, uh, called Rehearsal for Reconstruction, uh, which some of people might still know, which dealt with the Sea Islands, occupied area of the Sea Islands in South Carolina and Georgia during the Civil War. And so it was occupied early in the war. And that got me very interested in uh, the, the evolution of federal policy towards Southern Blacks uh, that, uh, that developed during the war. And that led me to the old military records in the National Archives uh, and to the what became a topic for my dissertation and my first book, which was uh, From Contraband to Freedmen, uh, Federal Policy Towards Southern Blacks During the Civil War. So that's how I kind of uh, migrated into uh, Civil War history, um, uh, both in terms of uh, where my family had come from, I think, probably influenced. My mother was from southwestern Missouri. She was from Neosho. My father from uh, eastern Kansas, Wichita. So I had kind of uh, backgrounds in, in the Civil War and border state sort of issues uh, in, my, uh, in my upbringing. Okay, now thinking about kind of those materials you look through, the research materials, for someone who might be wanting to study the Civil War and the Civil War in Missouri. Right. What would you recommend as some key primary sources that you yourself examined in your own work? I think uh, the Provost Marshal records uh, is what I would uh, point to. They, they are 
Uh, they're extensive. Uh, I haven't used them a lot. I've used them a, a little bit. Uh, they co cover a, a wide uh, swath of the um, of the South and the North, uh, and have not been examined systematically at all. So uh, now that uh, digital technologies are available to organize them and search them, uh, I think there should be very rich uh, uh, rich sources for another generation of historians. My own work took me to the National Archives where the old military records that I mentioned earlier were the precursors of the Freedmen's Bureau. That is to say the, uh, the, the policies that federal uh, government set up to deal with Southern blacks as uh, federal armies advanced into the South became eventually the, uh, those organizations became eventually the Freedmen's Bureau, but uh, finding those early papers uh, in the old military records was, uh, was a, uh, opened up a new trough of, uh, uh, of research uh, for myself and for many other per people, including Ira Berlin, who uh, published many of those, uh, many of those records in his uh, freedom, uh, freedom volumes. Uh, but I think the Provost Marshall records for a variety of reasons have been very difficult to uh, examine. Uh, they've spread out over a number of different states. Uh, there are individual records and collective records. Uh, and uh, although Missouri has done a fairly good job of organizing its uh, Provost Marshall records, they haven't been studied uh, in, any, in any great detail. Uh, and I think that would be a rich, uh, a rich resource for uh, another generation of historians. Now, before looking at the Civil War across the entire state, you focused in on St. Louis. And why did you find and, and think that a work on St. Louis, especially in the Civil War, was so important? Well, to be quite frank about it, the uh, Civil War St. Louis, the book that I published on the subject, uh, was the idea of Mike Briggs, who was at the time the editor, um, may still be, I don't know, uh, editor of the University Press of Kansas. Uh, he thought that that would be a good, a good topic. Uh, I had published um, Morality and Utility in American Anti-Slavery Forum with uh, the uh, University Press of North Carolina and was at the time that Mike Briggs approached me about the Civil War St. Louis project, I was focused pretty much on Salmon P. Chase, uh, who uh, had, had been a leading figure in the anti-slavery political movement, Lincoln's Secretary of Treasury, and then later, uh, of course, uh, uh, Chief Justice of the United States. Um, and I was pretty well, I studied the, uh, uh, the Chase papers and, uh, and was quite familiar with them. And it was, Chase, uh, Chase's admiration really for Thomas Hart Benton, Senator Thomas Hart Benton of Missouri, uh, that, that um, uh, prompted me to accept Mike Briggs' uh, offer to, uh, to put together a book on uh, Civil War St. Louis. Chase viewed St. Louis, Chase, he admired Benton, he viewed uh, Benton and St. Louis as emblematic really of the what he thought was the manner in which free labor uh, would overcome slavery. If free labor would advance, slavery would decline, even if he didn't have a civil war. Uh, and uh, the civil war, of course, from his point of view, hastened that. So uh, when I agreed to take on the project of the civil war in St. Louis, uh, or civil war St. Louis, as we call it in the volume, uh, that was pretty much my starting point. Uh, uh, Chase, uh, uh, 
Frank Blair, uh, those, uh, those uh, pivotal figures in shaping the um, emerging Republican Party and their, uh, uh, and their roles in, the, uh, in, this, in this area. Now, when people look at the Civil War, there's a, there's a tendency to focus on the Eastern theater, you know, Virginia, right. Georgia, even elements of the Tennessee uh, area as well. Yet, in your view, how important was Missouri, not only to the Union, but also to the Confederacy during the war? Um, yeah, uh, I've, I've made that point in um, uh, Civil War in Missouri, um, in the introductory material there, but most historians uh, have argued, and I think correctly, that the Civil War was won and lost in the West, uh, and St. Louis and Missouri literally uh, represented the West uh, in that, uh, in that uh, configuration. And the most notable thing, I think, for understanding the importance of St. Louis and Missouri uh, in, the, in the Civil War is uh, the control of the river valleys. I mean, you've got the Missouri River Valley coming through the entire state, the Mississippi River Valley uh, connecting north and south, the Ohio River Valley coming in through the, at, uh, at uh, Cairo. So at a time when commerce and travel and communications all followed those river highways, uh, if the United States was going to be able to uh, continue its, uh, what it understood as its progress toward continental empire, the, the migration westward and so forth, uh, control of those river valleys was absolutely essential. And for the Confederacy, if it was going to have any, uh, any uh, continental future, uh, they would have to have some sort of uh, uh, defensive border on the Mississippi and hopefully, uh, from their point of view, hopefully take control of the confluence of the Ohio and the Mississippi. So those struggles, uh, those struggles were, were essential to, uh, to both sides. And although the number of troops uh, that were deployed to accomplish that was considerably less uh, less than half a third, maybe, of uh, the major campaigns in the East, uh, the strategic significance of the of the conflicts were uh, were as important as uh, anything that happened in the East, and as most historians would argue, strategically more important because uh, uh, taking control of Richmond by uh, the federal forces would not end the Civil War, but uh, uh, dividing the Confederacy into uh, into militarily indefensible chunks, which is what happened after Vicksburg, uh, would. Now, in the lead up to the Civil War, there is a, a number of key migrations um, into Missouri um, in a number of different areas. How did not only the migration groups themselves um, certainly shape the state, but these residents, these new people living in Missouri, how did they view the politics and economic issues connected with what eventually would become the Civil War? Well, of course, the early uh, migrations from, um, from the Upper South, from Virginia, Kentucky, uh, shaped, the, uh, shaped the original configuration of the state and uh, allied it with, uh, with the South and helped to guarantee that, uh, that Missouri would be a, a, slave, a slave state. 
that began to change, that orientation began to change, of course, in the um, 1840s uh, with Irish migration and more dramatically for St. Louis with the German migration of the late 1840s. Uh, and that uh, German migration to St. Louis transformed St. Louis from a southern oriented city uh, to, a, uh, to a city that was now oriented toward the free labor ideology that would become the backbone of the Republican Party. The German Republicans uh, had lost their revolution in Germany, but they brought their ideology with them to, uh, to St. Louis and other, other cities. Uh, Cincinnati uh, being an important one for what we're talking about here today, uh, and Louisville. Um, and that would be followed by the migration uh, into St. Louis from the Northeast of a number of um, merchants, uh, manufacturers, uh, Oliver and Chauncey Philly, um, or Philly, I'm not sure exactly how you pronounce it, F-I-L-L-E-Y, who became leading political figures and uh, business figures in St. Louis who were uh, Northeastern uh, migrants. Franz Siegel, of course, was the leading uh, German, uh, German immigrant from, um, from the failed German uh, revolution. And, and these people uh, helped to, the Germans helped to transform St. Louis into a free labor city uh, the Northeastern merchants and manufacturers uh, helped to establish economic and political ties to uh, tour the Northeast. So as that developed, uh, as St. Louis became a, uh, a Northern-oriented city in a slave state, uh, it, the, the outlines of what we would come to call the border state uh, policy in the Civil War begins to take shape. So if you imagine a map uh, with uh, uh, St. Louis as the western flank of, uh, of the border states and you move east you would go to uh, Lexington, Kentucky and I'm looking all at, uh, at slave states, right? Uh, but St. Louis is a, an enclave of free labor in Missouri, uh, Lexington an enclave of free labor ideology in Kentucky, Charleston, similarly in the western counties of Virginia that become the separate state of West Virginia, uh, Baltimore in Maryland, uh, Wilmington in Delaware, so that fills out your, uh, your border to the, uh, to the east. So um, uh, that those migrations uh, of the uh, 1840s and 1850s uh, helped to ensure that St. Louis, as well as these other, uh, these other uh, cities, uh, would become um, footholds really for um, northern uh, for northern uh, free labor ideology in the border south. Now when someone talks about the Civil War in Missouri, there's an there's often an assumption to point to perhaps you know Price's raid or even the Battle of Wilson's Creek as kind of these major points of conflict. Um, or people will point out guerrilla warfare to a certain extent. But how did you interpret military strategy by both the Union and the Confederates in the state of Missouri? Well, what I, what I did, uh, my approach was to uh, take a look at the, the, all of the battles that uh, were considered major, uh, major conflicts. I did not spend a lot of time on uh, guerrilla warfare, although I think there's a lot that needs to be done. And uh, if we have time, we might go into a little bit of it. 
But the guerrilla warfare uh, in Missouri, in Kentucky, in all the border states and areas uh, was closely allied with uh, major military movements. I mean, the guerrillas didn't go where the armies were, they worked behind the army lines. And so until we know where the armies were, uh, where the major military forces were, uh, we're not gonna be able to make much sense out of, uh, of the guerrilla conflicts uh, and the guerrilla activities. So that's what I concentrated on, the major military movements uh, in Missouri, organized military movements, the military movements that followed chains of command that went to commanding generals and so forth. Uh, and not the, uh, the small skirmishes uh, and guerrilla activities. And I just point for this purpose of this discussion to a couple of battles uh, that were major battles uh, in, in Missouri, but also major battles in the Civil War as a whole. Uh, the Battle of New Madrid Bend uh, in the spring of 1862 uh, was one such, uh, one such uh, conflict. Uh, and the Battle of Westport uh, in the fall of 64 where, uh, was, was a second. Now the number of troops involved in these activities were not nearly the size as of Shiloh, for example, uh, compared to uh, Battle of New Madrid Bend uh, or uh, uh, I don't know, Petersburg compared with, uh, uh, compared with Westport. But the strategic importance uh, for the uh, war in the West was, uh, was exceedingly high. Uh, and um, the Battle of New Madrid Bend, for example, uh, rehearsed really what became uh, uh, Grant's siege of Vicksburg. So the use of gunboats in connection with uh, infantry uh, and artillery uh, batteries uh, to control the river and provide protection for crossing uh, troops crossing from the West Bank to the East Bank of the Mississippi were all tried out uh, in, uh, in the battle for New Madrid Bend uh, and the occup federal occupation of New Madrid Bend, particularly uh, after Shiloh forced the Confederacy to withdraw uh, its uh, defenses uh, all the way down to Vicksburg. So if you're looking at the war strategically in terms of victory and defeat in the West, that was a major, major breaking point. And of course, uh, uh, Price's failure uh, in his uh, raid through Missouri uh, and uh, his crushing defeat at, uh, uh, at Westport uh, really ended any, any chance that, uh, uh, that the Confederacy would, able, would be able to control any of, its, uh, any of its claims to Western territories. Now, you dedicated the Civil War in Missouri to your colleague and friend, uh, James Neal Prim. Talk a little bit about your relationship with him and how he helped craft your ideas and your and your projects here on the Civil War. Well, uh, Prim, James Neal Prim, of course, was the founding uh, chairman of the history department at the University of Missouri, St. Louis. So uh, our relationship began when he hired me back in the fall of 1969. Uh, but uh, we collaborated uh, uh, over over many things uh, and uh, over the years uh, and. Well, I wouldn't say he's his. Uh, he shaped my, my thinking. He certainly uh, was a constant kind of sounding board and and critic and uh, editor uh, for uh, for things that uh, I was working on. And I, I just like to point out, uh, since we're talking about Prim, that 
while he's best remembered for his uh, book on St. Louis, which was first uh, really professional historical treatment of the history of St. Louis, Lion of the Valley, he is perhaps um, most important in terms of the historiography of the, of the United States for his, um, his earliest work, uh, which he published with Harvard University Press in the 50s, uh, 1954. Uh, it was called Economic Policy in the Development of a Western State, Missouri, 1820 to 1860. And um, while it doesn't get read a lot anymore, it still gets uh, cited uh, with some frequency and, all, and cited in connection with two other works, which I don't want people to forget about. Uh, one is uh, Oscar Hanlon, who wrote a book also with Harvard University Press, uh, also in the uh, well, late 40s, in his case, 1947. Hanlon's book was called Commonwealth, a study of the role of government in the American economy, Massachusetts, 1774 to 1861. And that to those two, Prim's work and uh, Hanlon's work, uh, were, were often paired with a work by Louis Hartz, who's remembered as a major, Hanlon, of course, is remembered as a major, uh, the uprooted, the major historian of uh, immigration, uh, Louis Hart's major uh, historian, intellectual historian of, uh, of the United States. But his first book, also with Harvard University Press in 48, uh, was, uh, he, Hart's best remembered for his liberal tradition in America, I guess, was intellectual history of the United States. But his first book was Economic Policy of uh, and Democratic Thought, Pennsylvania, 1776 to 1860. So those three books, Massachusetts, uh, Pennsylvania, and Missouri, the Prim's contribution, played a leading role in the uh, America's um, embrace, really, intellectual embrace uh, of liberal capitalism in the post-World uh, War II period. The, the time these were written, there was a good deal of discussion that the government had become too intimately involved in economic development, that the history of the country had been uh, rugged individualism and so forth and so on. And what these three works demonstrated with great clarity uh, uh, was that that was never been the case, that economic development and political activity had always gone hand in hand, uh, and um, that uh, there was never any uh, historical uh, uh, conflict uh, against, against that. So the liberal capitalism that flourished in the, in the 1950s was buttressed uh, by, these, uh, by these three works. And I think that that focus on economic history and business history was at the core of what uh, of what Prim uh, Prim worked on. He went on, of course, of course, to do a history of the Federal Reserve uh, here in St. Louis, and was working. Uh, he died. Was working on a history of uh, the Stupp Brothers Bridge Company in St. Louis. Although the Stupp Brothers had a falling out, so uh, the manuscript uh, languishes uh, somewhere in their in their company archives. But anyway, Prim's. Uh, uh, Prim's contribution to American history and to uh, Missouri history and to St. Louis history was very, very uh, deeply uh, influenced by his, uh, his economic uh, history uh, studies. Now to close, the Civil War is really one of the most researched and written about time periods in United States history. Yet 
thinking about today, what is what do you think is an area of focus regarding the war? You can think of before, during, and after the conflict that is often overlooked by the general public. Yeah, I gave some some thought to that. And I guess right now, I mean, there's always going to be new perspectives. I mean, one of the uh, what's generated a lot of um, historical uh, reevaluations of the Civil War has been the interest in African American uh, lives and and uh, struggles. Uh, women, uh, of course, have also become important focal points. So all of those points of view uh, will continue to shift, and uh, with them uh, come new interpretations and new readings of of uh, uh, materials that otherwise seem to be well-worn and, uh, and uh, understood. But that, so that process will ne never stop. But I think in terms of what uh, some areas that uh, need some, uh, some study uh, that have been largely overlooked, I have to do with um, much more with local history and, and regional history. The, uh, for example, the whole relationship, uh, interaction between civil law and martial law has never been fully understood. In Missouri, we would very much need a, uh, an administrative history of the provost martial uh, organization, its evolution and change over time. And, uh, and we need that more broadly for the entire, for the entire country because martial law uh, affected uh, uh, nominally uh, northern states like Ohio as well as uh, as well as uh, uh, states like Missouri that were uh, betwixt and between and until we start and, and also I'd point out that in Missouri civil law was never totally uh, abandoned in favor of martial law except in areas where there was actual conflict and even that was oftentimes uh, ambiguous and unclear. So until we have a, a clearer notion of, of how martial law and uh, civil law interacted during the Civil War, um, we won't really be able to uh, understand um, uh, the, the effects on daily life through the provost marshals and so forth uh, on, uh, on individuals. I mean, so my, my point is that up till now, we've we've relied on anecdotal information. So you can find stories about good provost marshals, bad provost marshals, uh, violations of individual liberties uh, through martial law and uh, so forth and so on. But until we have a larger sense of the structure and how, uh, how deeply into um, communities, uh, martial law, for example, extended and for what length of time, uh, we won't really be able to say anything very, uh, very intelligent about uh, about the effect of the Civil War on civil society uh, in the United States. I guess that's where I would go. Thank you very much for joining me today, Louie. Okay, good to talk with you, Sean. Thank you for listening to the R Missouri podcast. If you would like to learn more about the podcast, including past and future episodes, information about guests, and upcoming events, please visit our website at shsmo.org forward slash our dash Missouri.